Thank you for coming to Cancer Center Ground Rounds, and uh, we welcome our uh, remote viewers as well. It is my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Joga Ibachuri. I get that? You got that right? Yeah, perfect. Okay. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him, and, and we'll uh, turn him loose. So uh, um, thanks to all of you who uh, survived uh, school vacation week. We were just talking about uh, kids up here. Um, Dr. Ibachuri comes to us uh, from Virginia Commonwealth, where he got both a, a bachelor's, uh, a, a, his MD, as, long, oh, oh, as well as uh, his Master's of Health Administration. So uh, lots of degrees behind uh, Dr. Avachuri's name. Uh, he does residency at the uh, University of Texas Health Science Center. And then near and dear to my heart, and he doesn't even know this, uh, he went up to Minnesota uh, where he did his fellowship in uh, colon and rectal surgery. I'm from Minnesota, so clearly that was the best place that he <laughs> um, uh, Not here? Multiple good places. <laughs> um, uh, you know, when you're from somewhere, you do have a, a soft spot. Right. And, uh, I, I know Bob still roots for uh, the Cleveland teams, so uh, these sorts of things happen. Um, uh, it's been a pleasure. He's been here since 2014, uh, and he is now chief of the Division of Colon and Rectal Surgery. Um, I've seen a little bit of what he's actually proposing to do, um, but I'm excited today to see uh, the basis for uh, some of his stuff. And it looks like he has a really interesting niche uh, and a, sort of an unexplored territory for, for treatment of rectal cancer. So with that, please. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you for allowing me to present our work. This is uh, something that's very interesting to us and our team and to me in particular. It's a problem we see very frequently when we see patients with rectal cancer. And uh, it's a, I want to talk about patient-reported outcomes in the treatment of rectal cancer. Um, I'm the chair of the Norris Cotton Cancer Center Rectal Cancer Multidisciplinary Team. This is a collaborative team um, that deals with the tr optimal treatment for patients with rectal cancer. Uh, and I'm a division chief of colon and rectal surgery. Uh, I have no disclosures um, for this talk or otherwise. So we're going to talk about what happens to patients after the treatment of rectal cancer and the major clinical question that we have as clinicians, patients have, about rectal cancer. Then we'll delve into what the current knowledge of patient-reported outcomes in rectal cancer are, both the current literature and our, personal, and, and our own data that looks at patient-reported outcomes in rectal cancer. And then we'll talk about what we're going to do, this critical study question about what we're going to do in the future and what we hope to do, and, how, and how, what are we going to do to understand better patient-reported outcomes in rectal cancer, because it's an area where there's a, a, a large gap in terms of knowledge for patients and for providers. And, you know, the first part is we're going to look at what happens with patients after the treatment of rectal cancer. And you can't talk about this without talking about the difference for a surgeon about reconstructing the bowels or giving a patient a permanent colostomy. And if you talk to anybody on the street, this is a very uh, hot topic, and most people will say, well, I would want my bowels to be put back together. And this is part of some of the basis about what we, what we want to find out about what the best thing to do to treat with patients. To talk about putting the bowels together, patients develop a constellation of symptoms afterwards, something called low anterior resection syndrome, which is a constellation of symptoms invol involving bowel frequency, incontinence, um, stool-related problems, uh, dis dis difficulty distinguishing between gas, liquid stool, and solid stool clustering and other major problems. It becomes so severe that people have created these forums on the Internet to talk about, patient, about low anterior resection syndrome and LARS or ARS. 
So I went to these forums to see what they were saying. Um, this patient said, I had a very dreadful low anterior resection syndrome. There is very little guidance. I feel like my life is not worthwhile. I have not left my local area since I had my bowels reconstructed. I spend almost 20 hours on the toilet in a week. It's so you can understand why I can't get to work. It's hard to make people understand that when you have to go to the bathroom, you have to go to the bathroom. And what happened to my muscles? What happened to my control? It used to be fine, but now we have, a, have an issue. This is a patient that says, this is not living. My tumor is very low. I was told a colostomy would, need, would be needed, but of course I fought that. That was before I knew living, be, living would be like this. And this is what I hear all the time. I would absolutely not want a colostomy. I want to have my bowels reconstructed, but patients sometimes experience this afterwards. I was so bad with my symptoms, I was hospitalized. My surgeon washed her hands of it, basically told me it's not a surgical issue. And other interesting thing is, of the doctors I've had, my radiation oncologist knew the most about this. So it's because we're a multidisciplinary team that takes care of rectal cancer that you have multiple different providers that have a, have a varying knowledge on this. But it's all, not, it's all not bad. Some patients do really well. This patient said, I came out with no low anterior resection syndrome score. So they did great. They're very happy. But I wish we knew we caused this. Why is there no pre-surgical indication about who will have problems and who won't? And this is, goes to the basis of what we want to do here. If so, if the surgeon can't tell, who can? If the expert can't tell, then who can? Um, this patient said, I thought I would not like a colostomy, but actually now that I've had it, I've learned to get used to it. But the last patient said, I have a new permanent colostomy and I hate my life. So we have these varying uh, levels of feelings for patients, and there are different factors that are associated with all of this. But is this a problem elsewhere? Are we, because we are doing modern uh, colon, colon rectal surgery here and modern multidisciplinary care? This was from our patients ourselves. I want to toss this out regarding our appointment next week. Are there any research studies about low anterior resection syndrome? I'm finding that about 90% of us experience this, and this is about right. About 60 to 90% of patients experience some difficulty with their bowels after surgery and multimodality therapy for rectal cancer. There does not seem to be any help from the medical field. This is a patient that I saw, had surgery and has sur survived. She's survived for over 15 years. But she has symptoms where she's been told to do Kegel exercises or pelvic force strengthening for 15 years. Every time she asked for about a colostomy, her provider said that she, you, didn't, you didn't want that. She, she spent 15 years. She didn't see her grandkids grow up. She spent her time at home. So this is the current problem. This is something that happens with us. It happens elsewhere, and this is what we want to, this is what we want to deal with. So what's the major clinical question for rectal cancer? It's a clinical question that we have for all cancers is what's the best treatment for each patient with rectal cancer in terms of cancer outcomes, that's both survival and morbidity, as well as quality of life, and, and for rectal cancer specifically, bowel function, what happens with, with people's bowels. And this is the area we really want to focus on, is the quality of life and bowel function, something that we're going to term as RCPRO, or rectal cancer patient-reported outcomes. But it's a problem that arises from a good thing. We're doing better, and people are living longer 
because that we are doing better in terms of treating rectal cancer. And so survival rates, five-year survival rates, are, are actually increasing over the last several decades. So people are having significant survivorship, and with that survivorship, we're finding problems that we did not necessarily know before. And if you look at any guidelines, we have a multi, multiple aspects of our toolbox that we can use for rectal cancer. You can do chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, and many different types and combinations of each. Even in surgery, this is uh, things that we can do. If you look here, this is a robotic proctectomy. This is something that I just did one of these this morning, where you do a surgery where we remove the entire rectum. Um, and we can do these minimally invasively. You can also start from the bottom and remove the entire rectum from the bottom up, and we've done that here. And some patients, they want to have just a small par portion of the tumor itself removed without taking everything else. So we have these multiple tools and multiple toolboxes for all different types of therapy. And so we need to figure out which ones work well for which patients. And, what, and if you have a patient that qualifies for multiple different types, that you can offer them and say, this is what potentially your outcomes are in terms of survival, morbidity, quality of life, bowel function, et cetera, so they can make a more informed decision. So what's the current knowledge of patient-reported outcomes in rectal cancer? Is this something that's been studied extensively and people, are, people know about it? And it, it has been studied. Um, we know that quality of life and bowel function worsens after the treatment of rectal cancer, and this is the largest study that's ever looked at bowel function. They, they looked at the entire... Uh, country of England, 12 to 36 months after treatment for colon and rectal cancer, both colon cancer, rectal sigmoid cancer, and rectal cancer. And they had over 20,000 patients, and of that, 6,000 of them had rectal cancer. And they had worse outcomes in terms of quality of life compared to colon cancer or rectal sigmoid cancer. Things like self-care, pain, anxiety. And so Younger patients and older patients, presence of ostomies and lower and more distal rectal tumor location were associated with worsening quality of life. And this, at least a younger patient, more, more patients experienced a worse problem in terms of their bowel function and in terms of their quality of life. So as surgeons, we want to see what treatment works better from our surgical standpoint. And so many studies have looked at differences between one surgical technique and another. And what they find is that there's a variable, variability in terms of the quality of life outcomes after proctectomy, taking the entire rectum out, versus local excision, just taking that little disc of tissue. And so, but this, in this study, this was about 30 patients. So this is, again, small cohorts that we're looking at. We've, we've also created, we see, you see this forum has had a lot of issues with low anterior resection syndrome, this constellation of symptoms that occurs after multimodality therapy, including removal of the rectum. Low anterior resection syndrome, we've created scores now that talk about low anterior resection syndrome score or the MSKCC bowel function instrument that has looked at patients that have had this operation and have low anterior resection syndrome, and we can judge how bad that, that symptom occurs. My criticism of this is that this does not allow me before surgery or before therapy to counsel patients. This is, you'd had, you already, you bought the car, now you realize it's a lemon. How much of a lemon is it? That's kind of how, that's kind of how it looks. So it's good for patients to know this, but we, I want to know what happens, and we want to know what happens before we even start treatment to be able to better counsel patients. So if, if I summarize, since 2005, all of the patient-reported outcome studies that have looked at um, uh, patients with rectal cancer, we see that 
the largest studies typically are the ones that look at colon and rectal cancer. In terms of rectal cancer, there's a large number of studies that have looked at things like local excision, small surgeries, and there's another group that looks at proctectomy. What you can see is that most studies don't, don't capture baseline data. When they come to my clinic for the initial visit, they don't talk about the, what their baseline data is. Most people follow, follow initially about their quali look at quality of life. Those that look at bowel function typically focus mostly on incontinence, and they don't fo focus on the other aspects of it, the social impact, the frequency, et cetera, sexual function. <coughs> There are some studies that have looked at global bowel function, some of these other factors that I've talked to you about, and most studies don't look at longitudinal data. They say, we looked at patients a year after they had surgery, or a year we did this, and we, we queried them via mail or via phone, and this is what the results are. So we don't really have this longitudinal evaluation. We have, since I came here in 2014, this is something that's interesting to me, so we've collected this data in our, in our office to be able to counsel patients better, as well as to try try to now start understanding treatments. And so we have uh, done some preliminary work that's looked at bowel functional outcomes that have been looked from baseline longitudinally. And while we're going to also now include quality of life, and this is, this is kind of the gist of what, what, how we're going to go from here, is what we're going to do about this. So we use a, a questionnaire called the CORIFO questionnaire, a colorectal functional outcome questionnaire. This is a 27-question, well-validated questionnaire that is looked at, um, that was de developed over greater than 130 patients. And they looked at patients that were normal, that did not have any disease, though, and those that also had colon and rectal, different colon and rectal operations. And this is a, this is a study that was, was vel well validated. It's a scoring system from zero to 100. Zero is associated with perfect function. 100 is associated with the worst function possible. And any score greater than 10 is associated with a symptomatic patient. So when we looked at patients that had very, very, very low reconstruction, these are patients that we could have a decision point where we could just give them a permanent colostomy or put their bowels back together. These patients chose to have a permanent, uh, chose to have their bowels put back together. We looked at these patients. They had a wide variety of stages. When we had eight patients in this study, uh, because the treatment of rectal cancer generally takes about a year, year and a half. So as we see these patients, we have, that's why it takes some time to be able to collect this data. What we find here is that most patients had a baseline score greater than 10, meaning that they were symptomatic. When they presented to the office, they were symptomatic, which is not surprising. They had a low rectal cancer, and they may have issues with bleeding and incontinence, et cetera. After we did multimodality therapy, that's radiation therapy, surgery, and and chemotherapy, what we found is that their bowel function severely worsened, almost two to threefold, almost on nearly every single factor, including incontinence, social impact, frequency, need for medication, and total global function. So these are, these are things that, does this make a difference for patients? It probably makes a difference. I believe it makes a difference for some patients, and it may, may, make a difference for, may not make a difference for other patients. We also started looking at this multimodality therapy for, for rectal cancer. We took patients at baseline, the patients that had stage 2 or stage 3 cancer, and then we, they underwent neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy, which is something that, that is a standard of care for these stage 2 and stage 3 patients. And what happened, we checked their function afterwards. And what we found is that patients that were symptomatic at baseline stayed symptomatic. 
whereas those that were asymptomatic at baseline then became symptomatic after neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy, and we're still accruing patients on this. These are 32 patients. We're probably about 50 patients now uh, that, that's looking at this. So we find that a couple of things. Distal tumor location is, worse, is associated with bad function, and, and radiation therapy probably does have some effect, and there's other studies that have shown that as well. So to summarize what the limitations of current knowledge is, is most people are doing this retrospectively, and there's a lack of longitudinal evaluation for patients. There's a limited focus on single procedures and treatments. I'm, you know, if I were a surgeon, I, you know, if I was a surgeon that was interested in one treatment, I want to compare that to another treatment, and that's all I want to do. I want to know what happens with all patients with all different types of treatments. We've, there's a focus on quality of life or bowel function only, and we've been guilty of that. We were focusing on bowel function, now we're going to include quality of life. There's a limited focus on incontinence, and most studies had small co cohorts, including ours. So what's the critical study question now? There's this limitation, there's this clinical problem where patients have, don't have ability, we're not able to counsel patients well on what's gonna happen with their quality of life and bowel function. And the current data is limited. So our critical study question is what factors are associated with the greatest decrease in quality of life and bowel function from baseline following rectal cancer treatment? Because we know that, that from our many studies there has been a decrease in quality of life and bowel function. So what are we going to do to understand this RCPRO, this quality of life and bowel function, and address this critical study question? I told you we, we formed this multidisciplinary team for rectal cancer, rectal cancer MDT. This is something that we've, tra we've taken care of rectal cancer in a multidisciplinary manner for many years. But we're, we, did, we codified this through the uh, National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cancer through the American College of Surgeons, and this is something that we, this team that we formed it, to follow their protocol. Uh, we did this starting August 2017. And so this is a clinical care team here at Norris Cotton that takes care of rectal cancer. Includes members from colon and rectal surgery, gastrointestinal oncology, radiation oncology, pathology, and radiology. Uh, and this is our team. You recognize many of these uh, folks here. They've, they've been very instrumental at, at, at and, and inter, interested, enthusiastic, and provide their clinical expertise to help us understand, take care of the rectal cancer patient, as well as to take care of, uh, to understand the, our critical study question. So the goals of our pilot evaluation is to optimize a process to collect this data and integration with existing clinical data. We want to pilot test a process of high-quality serial collection of this data and integration within our tumor registry and our clinical, clinical EMR systems. And once we obtain the pilot data, we want to be able to do a preliminary analysis to see what the greatest decrease in this quality of life and bowel function is following, the can following rectal cancer treatment. We want to obtain this integrated pilot data to identify those factors, and we hypothesize that age greater than 70, radiation therapy, and distal rectal tumor, tumor location are the three factors that have the greatest decrease in bowel function and, and rectal cancer patient-reported outcomes. We are going to include 50 patients in the pilot phase with an age greater than 18. We're going to use non-metastatic patients, patients that we, uh, will typically go to an operation because if their patients are metastatic, typically most of them won't go to an operation. So we want to know, we want to have all treatment options on the table for these patients. As you can see, our volumes are high enough where we'll be able to, we'll be able to meet this. We'll exclude prisoners and patients desire not to participate. Now, I've collected this data. The interesting part is I've collected this data for bowel function for all of our patients in our colorectal clinic, and most patients really like it. 
They want to know what their scores are. They want to know how things are. Um, and, they, and they usually and they include it in my note, and I send it to referring providers, and they're very interested in, in seeing how things change, uh, both from, from a clinical standpoint. And to talk about how we've been evaluating this, I, when I came here in 2014, we did this on paper, which is a very cumbersome process and very difficult for people to make sure people would be able to figure, figure it out. We, we implemented it electronically uh, with, with our um, uh, my DH team to be able to have it electronic, uh, electronically done on tablets. And initially, I, had, I allowed patients to skip questions, but then... I saw that because the buttons were so easy for somebody to click a button, you would skip a question and it would make, it would make the data difficult. A lot of times it, some aspects would be incomplete. So we, in October 2015, we decided to do all questions to be completed, and we've included quality of life patient reported outcomes, uh, which has been really, really important to me because right now, before this, if you had a colostomy or an ileostomy, a bag, I was not able to give you a questionnaire because you can't tell you what your bowel function is because you're not using the, the um, apparatus of the anatomy to do it. But now we can actually query all patients so we can see what their quality of life is, what their bowel function is. So patients are given a tablet by our staff at the time of registration. They take this tablet and they fill it out prior to being seen by a provider. And like I said, patients really enjoy this aspect of it. So what are the survey instruments we've used? I've looked at many different survey instruments for this. From bowel function, we're going to, we're, we'll use the Corvo questionnaire like we discussed, and for quality of life, we'll use a Promise 10 Global Health. It's something that the orthopedic department here has used significantly, um, and it's something that's short, but it's actually, so with the 27 questions of the Corvo questionnaire, the other aspects, the EORTC studies, the EORTC with the, colorect, with the col colorectal module, the FACC, the SF36, these take a lot of time. Uh, and there are a lot more questions, and people will stop filling out these questionnaires because it's too much for them. Similar, to, similar, the other things we evaluated for bowel function are mostly incontinent survey scales, which misses the global aspect, and then things like the LAR score and the bowel function instrument, which talk about one specific aspect, but not a global bowel function for, that can be used for all patients. So the CORFO questionnaire, like I said, was over 100 patients developed in 2005 in the Netherlands. It's 27 questions with five domains or five scales, incontinence, social impact, stool-related aspects, frequency, and need for medications. It measured bowel function over a two-week period, which is good because generally the timing between treatments for rectal cancer is generally somewhere between 12 treatments before they come see me in the office again. So they have time to be able to go through this. Higher score indicates worse function, and a score greater than 10 is considered symptomatic. Uh, so the scales are, you know, incontinence to gas, liquid stool, solid stool, the need for wearing protective underwear, things like that. Social impact is talking about stooling patterns, stooling, uh, stool habits, the effect of bowel movements on daily activity, social activity, sexual activity. So you're capturing many aspects that, that we have to deal with in terms of rectal cancer. Frequency, how often do you go during the day? How often do you go during the night? Stool-related aspects, pain with bowel movements, blood with bowel movements, and need for medication, the use of food or medication to make your bowels thinner or thicker. So this is what it looks like in the, in, in the, in the, um, in the electronic medical record. I can, I can see all, 12, all 27 questions, as well as all the scales and the total score. And this patient is a patient with rectal cancer. So when I first saw him, 
he had significantly dimin diminished function. After radiation therapy, his function significantly improved, but was still symptomatic. We then, once we reconstructed his bowels, and you can see that it's almost about a year time frame. This is October 2016 to June 20, 2017, after he got surgery and chemotherapy, his bowel function still became significantly more poor. And, and most recently, when I saw him in a six-month follow-up, it actually stayed poor in terms of his bowel function. But other aspects have improved, such as his stool-related aspects and medication. He takes a less, less of this. So, and we can also look at this in a graphical format. Patients like to see it this way, where they can say, okay, we started here, then we got better, then I got worse, then I'm getting better. Hopefully, six, six months, I'll continue to get better. In terms of the Promise Town Global Health, uh, this is uh, using the Patient Reported Outcomes Measurement Information System Global Health Survey, which is a very brief measure. It's 10 questions that look at both physical and mental health and takes no more than two minutes. Uh, it correlates well with other promise measures such as fatigue and pain, and it's a T-score, so it's, all, it's, it's normalized to the general U.S. population. A score of 50 is, is, is an average score, uh, and a higher score uh, anything above 10, uh, you know, any, any the standard deviation is 10, so 60 is one standard deviation greater. This is what the short, short form survey is. So this is that same patient that had the really poor bowel, bowel function. But if you look at his physical and mental health, it's actually excellent. It's the same as, as the U.S. population. So for him, when you talk to him, he says, yeah, the bowels are a problem, but I've learned to live with it, and I'm able to do what I want to do. So we did a good thing by reconstructing him. I'm really glad we re reconstructed him. The one thing that we don't have for bowels is bothersomeness, which means that this is that aspect where your quality of life is good, but your bowel function is not good. For, for you, it may not bother you. But for some people, it may significantly bother you. And this is something that the, that the urologists have really done a good job about in terms of uh, prostate disease. And so... I want to collect this data for bothersomeness, understanding that we don't have a measure as now in terms of doing this, and essentially we'll just change, we'll use this and we'll change urinary symptoms to bowel symptoms and see, and see, see what happens in terms of a pilot evaluation, because I want to know if, if it actually bothers people or not. So if I were to take a, the most common treatment pathway that we do for rectal cancer, uh, we have stage one, stage two and stage three patients. We have a baseline evaluation they get neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy, which typically lasts about four to six weeks. They spend about 12 to 16 weeks time frame before they see me again in the office. Then we ch collect their bowel function and quality of life again. Then we'll, we'll do a surgery one. We'll take their rectum out, and then they'll see me in the office. When, because they have an ostomy at this time or an ileostomy or a colostomy, we will be just collecting quality of life data on them. They would then undergo adjuvant chemotherapy. We'll, after adjuvant chemotherapy, we'll collect another quality of life. And then once we end treatment, we do another operation where we reconstruct their bowels and have them move their bowels through the bottom again. Then we'll be able to collect bowel function and quality of life again for that time point five. Now, I told you that there are many different treatment paradigms for rectal cancer, some where we omit radiation, some where patients refuse chemotherapy, some where they refuse surgery. Sometimes we do a different operation. But every patient is going to have a baseline and an end of treatment. And those are the two aspects we're really going to compare here because we want to be able to – this study is, wants to be able to, come to, to look at patients. We want to make sure that we can collect this data. 
and we have a process that we can take elsewhere to do that. Um, so we're going to compare our baseline to time point five. We were expecting a minimum completion rate of 90%. That's 45 out of the 50 patients complete, complete all eligible surveys. So if a patient in the last example have five eligible surveys, we want to make sure they have complete all of them and complete them completely. And then in terms of integrating it with our tumor registry, we're working with the registry rate shared resource here to be able to integrate it with the tumor registry as well as our, our clinical data. So we're going to study this using implementation science. And uh, I have a, Dr. Lord, who's one of the, our implementation scientists, that are going to, that's going to help us uh, take a look at this uh, in, in prepare, preparing for multicenter collection. Because I showed you that our volumes are about 70 patients. And we can do this for 10 years and get 700 patients. But we really need to be able to collect data in a more broad uh, manner. Like I said, we'll hypothesize that age greater than 70, radiation roots, and tumor location are associated with the greatest decrease in this. And using our electronic medical record, we'll collect things like age, gender, BMI, date of collection, and bothersomeness because we have to make, the, we have to make this survey up. Um, the uh, tumor registry will be able to do tumor-specific data as well as this RCPRO data that we'll be collecting. We have three groups that are already interested that have signed on for the project. Um, they are they uh, provided, you know, I'm applying for grants now to get funding for this. I will be traveling to these sites, talking to them, to their rectal cancer multidisciplinary teams to get them on board. So if once we study a process and have a validated process here, we can take this process elsewhere and help integrate it with our next grant. So what is the next step? What's the future directions of this? We're going to implement this in our collaborative sites using our studied process. I would ideally love to create a shorter survey that captures quality of life, bowel function, and bothersomeness, something like 10 questions. Once we get enough data, and this is more, much more long-term, we would be able to collect, have, a, have something that would be able to do this for patients with rectal cancer. And then, you know, the holy grail, my, my dream for this is to establish a tool that can predict quality of life, bowel function, cancer-specific outcomes for patients prior to treatment that we can put that in and be able to collect that sort of, collect that data. So this is a, this is, I, I read this study probably a year ago. This, these are the world's experts in looking at patient reported outcomes. And this is this, this is the simple question that people have, choosing an ostomy or sphincter sparing surgery. They say, we are not aware of a validated tool or evidence-based resource to assist with the decision to undergo an ostomy or sphincter sparing surgery. And Shame on us as clinicians to not, to not have done this because this is the major question that people have when they sit in my office and we talk about what's going to happen with their bowel function, what, what's not going to happen with their bowel function. Should I have an ostomy? Should I not have an ostomy? What's going to, what is my body image going to be? What is my quality of life? Am I going to be better? Can I talk to a patient? But that doesn't, you can talk to somebody, but that doesn't portend that your outcome is going to be the same as their outcome. And we really want to go with this personalized medicine for, for this treatment. So in summary, patients are affected significantly after treatment for rectal cancer. We need to do better in understanding the effects on quality of life and bowel function for rectal cancer, and we're now working to understand these effects. I'll, I'll, I'll put it back to that same patient that I had, the one that spent 15 years told to be, were spent 15 years to be told to do Kegel exercises. Uh, I gave her a colostomy. Actually, when I first saw her, saw her in the office, I said, I'm so sorry, we've completely, we have failed you for 15 years to tell you that you can't have a colostomy. Because 
what was the what was the problem? So I gave her a colostomy, and it said she says this is from our ostomy nurse, and she says she feels so better so much better with a colostomy. If I had diarrhea before, it meant a complete change of clothes in a shower. So she survived rectal cancer, and she has spent 15 years dealing with all of these other symptoms. She states she showed the colostomy to her husband, and he, being 90, cannot figure this whole thing out. So, I mean, maybe he could have figured it out at 75, what if he had had it, you know? But he, it's, 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 you know, it's, this is kind of what we deal with. So, so I want to I help these patients to, beforehand so that we can make a better decision for them. Because rectal cancer treatment, we've gotten better, and now we have to do better in terms of how to help patient-reported outcomes, how to help their quality of life and bowel function. I'd like to thank our, um, our rectal cancer multidisciplinary team, our external collaborators and internal collaborators. Our clinic staff has been very supportive of this, and, my sec and our secretary has been very good about assigning these questionnaires to patients so that we can actually collect the data. So um, with this, I'll take any questions. I appreciate the chance to be able to speak with you guys about this. I really applaud your um, interest in leadership in this area. It sounds like a very promising area for further evidence development. Yeah. And I wanted to encourage you to um, consider, um, well, the, the whole idea of the multidisciplinary team. It might be a nice idea to try to think of potentially augmenting that to include a decision scientist. Yes. Um, we, we have some people. Um, you know, kind of associated with the cancer control program who are well-trained in decision science and have developed some of the kinds of tools you're talking about. Yeah, okay. Kind of shared decision-making right. tools. Right, right. Um, and I think it's really important what you've identified, the, the fact that um, bothersomeness hasn't been measured. And I think it would be very important to bring kind of patient preferences into play earlier, okay. sooner rather than later. Okay. And I think you have a tremendous opportunity to um, maybe develop a new and valid Right, right. I would love to do that, yeah. But there, there are some um, people who have a great deal of experience within the I would, I would, I, That would be fantastic. Who um, could help um, bring kind of a patient voice to the table in your work. Okay. Which is what I very much appreciate. That would be That would be wonderful, yeah. Uh, can I uh, send you an email and talk to you afterward? Yeah. Yes, sir. What is the, what is the, I ask this naively, what, what is the frequency of recurrence of rectal cancer? And, and thinking sort of about your, it sounds like there's an initial sort of uh, branching point between getting either an ostomy or a rebuild. And if there are, I didn't hear anything from you, I guess, in differences in recurrence depending upon which treatment that you get. Typically, because we're talking about local recurrence and survival, that we found that the recurrence rates for rectal cancer, you know, with radiation therapy and a good quality surgery, whether you reconstruct or not, in terms of negative margins, in terms of uh, getting a good what we call circumferential resection margin and a total mesorectal incision where we take the rectum and the associated lymph nodes associated with that. The, the reconstructive aspect, there are factors that are associated with that, but recurrence rates are not dependent on, how, on reconstruction or not reconstruction. Recurrence rates are dependent on the quality of your operation. And the use of radiation are not based on state based on the stage of patients. So recurrence rates for rectal cancer that's treated with with, with good quality surgery and radiation therapy and chemotherapy is about six percent. So it's not high. 
that's good quality surgery, meaning getting negative margins, doing a complete TME with an with adequate circumferential resection margin. It's not high. Um, that's why we have a lot of survivors now that are dealing with other problems associated with it. Do you have any natural history data on um, people diagnosed at this stage? I mean, I, I, it's impossible to collect now. Uh, is there any uh, feeling? Or, I mean, because it does sort of, it raises, interestingly, this is an intervention that seems to inexorably decrease quality of life. Um, the the, the rectal reconstruction? Basically, the whole thing. I mean, uh, so, uh, I don't know about the reconstruction, but it's uh, reversing the ostium. Uh, that, that, sounds, that sounds like a testable hypothesis. Right. Um, but it seems to be a given that the quality of life goes down. And, and uh, so, it kind of begs the question. Are you, what are you signing up for? Uh, and, uh, I mean, 6% recurrence rate, and that's a local recurrence? Local recurrence, yeah. But isn't the great fear of metastatic? Uh, I mean, metastatic is what, what impacts the survival for these patients. Survival overall survival for these patients. Local but local recurrence can be significantly morbid for these patients. Of course. But, but their morbidity is already going to go higher. Uh, right. in, in the sense of symptoms. So that, that, it, it's really a fascinating uh, that you're talking to the right team here at the Cancer Center in terms of uh, sort of understanding right. uh, the implications for, for these decisions. Right. I, I want to understand the... It's a, it's a complicated thing, but, you know, 40, you know there, there's a 40-year-old that has the the ability because of time and age and quality of tissue to do okay with a reconstruction, for example, and have good survival and do. The person I showed you has poor bowel function, but he says, I love my life. I'm so glad I'm reconstructed. I'm very happy. I don't have any problems. And so it's not a black and white type of thing. But we as surgeons recently have become more aggressive about reconstructing patients in many different ways, and we've tried to try to create new treatments. And, and in fact, for, this, for one quality measure for this accredited, for National Accreditation Program for Rectal Cancer is the number, amount of reconstructed surgeries you've done, the percentage of surgery that is, that is of reconstruction. And that may not be the best, may not be a good quality measure, because it may be that you can technically do it. I, can, I tell patients, I can technically put your bowels together, but you're really not going to like what's going to happen. Well, that sounds like a trial ready to happen. Right. Uh, I think we need to get the preliminary. We need to see what we don't know what the effect size, generally what the effect size is for these things. So that's what we're trying to look for right now. Yes, sir. How much do you think um, um, self-reported outcomes and, um, and satisfaction would or will, would not correlate with physical measures of sphincter function in terms of anal manometry and or pouch pressure and, and, and the like. How much do you, of this do you think is you know, fun, functional? Functional. Um, it's, it's, an inter it's an interesting point because we can measure these things, how good the actual muscle, muscles work and how much is, is just the 
we know that the colon can never be the rectum. The rectum is very unique in that it can distinguish between gas, liquid, stool, solid stool. It can do receptive relaxation. It can act as a reservoir. Um, I can hearken it to patients that don't have cancer but have fecal incontinence. There are patients that have really poor fecal incontinence, meaning they have poor physical function measurements as well as patient-reported outcomes measurements, and then they choose to do something else with it. Where other patients may still have poor physical function elements, but they report decent satisfaction because of the other aspects of their life. Maybe they, like, they're at home, they don't travel, or they have, all their family is within a mile, or they live on the same street. And so you get those other aspects of it. So I think trying to parse that out, I do think that there's some physiologic functional issues. I think there's a physical anatomy problem. Radiation certainly stiffens the pelvic floor musculature. So we have all of these aspects of it. But, you know, in the end, does it, if it, the patient's bothered or not bothered or the patient has significant issues, we have to figure it, we have to figure it out. It also like, begs, begs the question whether we're able to offer patients optimal you know, rehabilitative services with kind of you know, biofeedback bio yeah, right. and, and, and the like. Um, and I doubt any place provides optimal rehabilitation right. services in, in this and, and, you know, we, I send, you know, we, we see these patients six months after we finish treatment. And, you know, I'm looking at their functional outcome scores. I'm talking to them. We send them to biofeedback. We, we try medication therapies. We, we, we try all those things. And, um, you know, but it's kind of, it comes to me like the LAR score. And, and this thing is like, okay, you did everything, and now you're just trying to measure this. So I want to know what happens beforehand so we can then be able to help people better. Has there been any um, attempts at having people be um, assessed or evaluated pre-op to see what their pelvic floor function or sensation and strength and function is before surgery? Uh, there, there have been some studies that have looked at uh, anorectal manometry measures the, and, and and uh, you know, EMG, nerve conduction studies, things like that. And they do diminish even at, at, definitely after proctectomy. And, and, but not after local excision. If you do a small excision and you maintain the integrity of the rectal wall elsewhere, as well as the re remainder of the rectum, the, the function does stay about the same. And we, we see that with our patients. When we do a small local excision, patients have pretty good function. But we know that they're generally their local occurrence rate and their survival are worse compared to a major rectal reconstruction. Yes, sir. So this was excellent. And I have two questions. There is no better understanding of the molecular steps in colon and rectal cancer development. And there is a national trend of trying to find biomarkers for to, to predict toxicity, not just efficacy. Has anybody looked at the outcomes that you look at? They very mechanical. Correct. Has anybody looked at whether the rough mutants disease is associated with more or less or MSI high or any of these biomarkers that we routinely collect? In terms of patient-reported outcomes or? Is there an association there that you may be able to gather? Maybe. 
I, I don't know of that. I'd have to look at. I would have to look at it. Just thinking, thinking of it though, is that the macroscopic anatomic change of surgery and radiation therapy is probably have a much more dramatic effect than than the molecular aspect. But to your point, it's very interesting because there are there is a group of patients that. When we take their rectum out, they have no further tumor. And there is a group of patients where you give them chemotherapy and radiation, and their tumor goes completely away, and they completely avoid surgery. They say, I don't want to have surgery. And we, these patients have been followed on a clinical trial, multiple clinical trials. And those patients that choose to do that, I find actually their function is excellent because we don't do any surgery on them. And it's kind of like anal cancer where we used to do a big surgery on them in the 1960s, and now we have a new therapy where we give them chemotherapy and radiation, and, and we don't, I, rare, I rarely to never do any surgery for anal cancer. And it may get to that point if we can find what patients have the certain tumor characteristics or molecular markers in their tumor to be able to just give them chemotherapy and radiation and have it completely go away. It might be that a watchful waiting approach could be uh, used for, you know, the wait for a while for symptoms to get worse uh, if it's thought that they're not really increasing the rate of recurrence that much. Right. I, I mean, so yeah, it's... it's then, then you can randomize the waiting and not. That, that's an interesting topic because the patients that I've watched, it's called watchful waiting, the patients that you've watchfully waited um, and followed them, I know when their recurrence starts coming back because their bowel function starts worsening again. So uh, it starts going back to the way it used to be. And so I began really saying, okay, I feel like there's something going on. The problem with that is we don't have really good measures to know who truly does not have tumor and who doesn't. You know, PET scans and MRIs, MRI scar and tumor look exactly the same, and it's very difficult. Uh, and so a lot of the work uh, at Slow Kettering, for example, has have talked about, um, you know, what happens in the mucosa when we take a look with the scope generally portends what happens elsewhere. I've had other patients where what happens inside the bowel wall, when I can take a liquid scope, looks normal, but they do develop a recurrence elsewhere. The issue, with, the issue for us is that surgery, if you give them radiation and you wait two years, is extremely difficult and associated with worse, worsening surgical outcomes. Yes, Peter. Do, do you foresee that based on your results, your collected data, you would be introducing some changes to your surgical technique approach or something like that? I mean, I think the surgical technique, the principles of surgical technique have been really well studied. It's whether we're going to do different treatments. And, and I think that, that these have been studied in multiple multicenter randomized control trials. And that's, I think our surgical technique for proctectomy, for example, is something that's really been well studied. And the principles of that have been, have been well studied. It's the offering, because we have multiple surgical techniques we can offer, it's offering which one works best for which patient. You know, it's, it's mostly, when I was in training, it's mostly anecdote. Oh, this patient's 80 years old, so I'm not going to offer this patient uh, complete rectal removal. But, you know, what if they're 80 years, old, 80 years old, independently living, doing fine, have excellent bowel function, et cetera? Age may not may not be a factor, and so and so it's kind of what part what combination do we offer? Well, thank you guys very much. Thank you. I appreciate it.